Well, once again, uh, good morning to you. If you got here a little late uh, this morning, just a couple of reminders that we talked about from the top of the service today. There are uh, our budget summaries out in the lobby. Grab one of those, ask any questions you've got over the next couple of weeks. Don't forget about the blessing tree straight across in the lobby. If you want to recommend a single parent family or if you're a single parent family, you could use some assistance on this Christmas. If there's any way we can help, you can do that straight across uh, the lobby and a reminder about the link if you would uh, be willing to have a conversation about serving uh, in LifePoint Kids. Um, that is in the app notes if you wanna go ahead and get those out now as, uh, as we kind of start uh, the message time. So this year, um, I know for some of you, right, I would say, um, hope you've had a great beginning to the Christmas season, but for some of you, <laughs> you started a month ago, right? <laughs> this year, halfway through, right now. Um, you put your Halloween costume up on the 31st, and on November the 1st, right, it was all, of, you got the decorations out, you got the eggnog out, you got, you know, your Christmas music, and um, I was thinking about that this week, I thought about, you know, I really do give the generations that are kind of behind uh, me, I give them a lot of grief about their music because it's so bad, and I, I kind of kid them about it. However, I will say that I think my generation um, ruined Christmas music. Um, I think that we're the ones who, um, who mess with, with, you know, with songs like this. Last Christmas, I gave you my heart, but the very next day, you gave it away. I, I really believe that St. Peter is going to be right, pearly gates, end of time, and you're, and, you know, we're all going to go up there and stand in front of him, and he's going to say, oh, you liked last Christmas. Sorry, we don't allow people like you in here. <laughs> like, I think that could be the dividing, right? The dividing line. Um, well, as we think about Christmas uh, this year in uh, our series, um, Love's Pure Light, um, we're actually taking more of an Advent-ish, I know that's not an adjective, I turned it into one, um, kind of approach to the Christmas season uh, this year. Instead of maybe looking at the traditional narratives throughout the whole series, um, we're gonna look at Colossians chapter one and this idea of ad Advent is a Latin word, the Latin word's Adventus, uh, which means coming or arrival. So the coming or the arrival of Jesus, our early church father celebrated the reality that when Jesus came, he brought light into darkness and not just into darkness, but to push back Darkness. That's why you see Advent so often associated with um, candles. And so there's like each Advent candle. So we're going to talk about four concepts that are related to really the theology behind Christmas, all of them from Colossians chapter 1. We're going to talk about um, hope, joy, peace, uh, and faith uh, as the realities of Jesus and this, this idea of his coming, his arrival, and it bringing light all culminating on December uh, the 24th on Christmas Eve. We'll have services at 8, 9.30, and 11 uh, that morning. And I hope some of you will come to the 8 o'clock uh, that Sunday morning on Christmas Eve where we will celebrate at the end of that service by passing around actual real fire uh, to everyone in the room in the hopes that no one spontaneously combusts, right? And we don't set anything on fire because Jesus is this, this light that has come into the world uh, to, dispel, uh, to dispel darkness. So when you think about um, Colossians chapter one, Paul writing uh, this letter, we're gonna start right at the beginning. Uh, Colossians chapter one, uh, verse one. Uh, we'll look at verses one and two to start, but we're starting with this idea today that Jesus brought us hope. Right, today's that's what we're looking at. We're looking at this idea of hope. So Colossians chapter one, 
uh, verses 1 and 2, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and to the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So three things I just want you to notice real quickly here. First thing, Paul, it's the same Paul. We've talked about him before, right? He's an apostle, right? He is one that is sent by God. That's what that, that's what that word means. So Paul is this church planting missionary, not of his own accord or desire, but he says it's by the will, right, of God that he does this, that he goes around and that he plants churches. So immediately in Colossians chapter one, and I think it's kind of embedded in Christmas, is this idea of missions, right? Jesus is the original missionary, right? He left heaven, came to earth. He left where he lived, came to where we live, right? To bring hope in the context um, of light. And so Paul kind of models this for us, what, um, uh, again, appealing to our early church fathers, they called the incarnation, right? The core word there, carne, is the, is the word meat or flesh, right, in, uh, in Italian. So uh, the, we have animals who are carnivores, right, who are meat eaters. So Jesus, the original, he leaves heaven, comes to earth, right, on this mission to save us, and he is in Incarnate. He is God with flesh on his bones or God with, with, with meat on his bones. So Paul, because of God and because of this, this Christmas mission, that's who it, this message is coming from. But then you say, well, okay, well, who, um, who is this message coming to? He says it's to the saints. That's a weird word, right? Because certainly the people at Colossae that were even believers, they were not perfect people. The people who are in this room, the guy who's talking to you right now, right? Just because I call myself a Christian or you call yourself a Christian doesn't make us saintly. What makes us saintly, the reason that Paul would use this language for them is because they've been made saintly by the work of Christ, the finished work of Christ on the cross, resurrected. He gives us this legal standing in front of God um, as saints and faithful brothers. He uses that to describe them. That's the, uh, the Greek word is autophoi, right? Where we get um, our word when we say Philadelphia, right? The city of brotherly love. He says this to you, Colossians, I'm writing to you, bringing this whole idea, this Christmas missions idea to you, to you that I love. Now that's kind of interesting because the next two verses in verses three and four, um, they say something that's kind of interesting. Um, we always thank God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ, uh, Christ Jesus, and the love that you have um, for all the saints. Now, the weird word in this verse, right, is this word right here. He says that we have heard of your faith. Now, the reason that's interesting is because when you read the history of Paul's church planting missionary journeys in the book of Acts, there's no record that he ever visited Colossae. There were three churches uh, or three cities here, Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. And there's no record that Paul ever planted a church here. Most likely, Paul planted a church somewhere, let's say Ephesus, and some Ephesian Christians left Ephesus and went to Col Colossae and planted this church. I think that's why Paul says, we've heard of your, Paul says, I don't even know a lot of you, but I have heard of your faith, your faithful brothers and your saints. And I think about Christmas again in the context uh, of missions locally, and then I think about it globally. 
um, locally for us. Back in 2015, uh, we sent about 175 to 200 people from here to Delaware, people who already kind of lived that direction and lived that way, and they started our Delaware congregation. And then a couple of years ago, our Delaware congregation, um, they took the step of sending about 75 or so folks up to Marion, and they planted our Marion um, congregation. So a lot of you have heard of their faith, right? In Mary, you've never met them. You probably don't know them, right? You know maybe Paul, who the leader, uh, not St. Paul, but Paul Pretty, um, who's the leader up in, maybe we should start calling him St. Paul, um, up, in, up in Mary, and you've heard of him, but you've heard of the congregation. You've heard of what God is doing. So these Colossian Christians are kind of like Paul's spiritual grandkids, much like we have a similar relationship locally but not just locally, globally. Um, since the founding of our church 19 years ago, as part of our network, we give financially and support church planting globally, generally. So we have given financially, let's say, to a place like Puerto Rico to help plant churches there. But over time, it goes, um, we're blessed to be able to plant them, those churches and help generally to being able to help specifically. This week, a couple of folks from our missions team went to Puerto Rico, met with a planter uh, there that we uh, potentially are going to be able to partner with specifically as they plant a new church there in PR. Why? Because we have heard of their faith. We, we've seen, you know, Puerto Rico, a place that was devastated by two horrific hurricanes in the last five years. And the stories that keep coming out of Puerto Rico is that their churches are multiplying, people are growing um, spiritually, and Christ's name is being made known. In, inherent in the idea of Christmas is also this idea of missionary hope. And that's really what Paul gets to in the next verse, in verse 5. He says, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in the word of truth um, in the gospel. So if it doesn't mean anything else, gospel hope at least means that a terrible curse necessitated an incredible Christmas. Gospel hope at least means that a terrible curse necessitated an incredible Christmas. And what I mean by that is that if you go all the way back to the beginning, if you go all the way back to the book um, of Genesis, what happens with Adam and Eve and God in the Garden of Eden, right? This story that works its way out over Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is that Adam and Eve chose disobedience. Adam and Eve chose, instead of being selfless, they chose to be selfish. They wanted to put themselves in the position of being and becoming their own their own savior, their own God. And because they listened to the serpent, whenever they made that choice and made that decision, what that did was it brought a curse. It, it hung a curse over the head of all humanity, even to today, over your head and over my head. You're like, what, what do you mean by curse? How did that work? Well, it affected us in a, new, a number of ways, but I'll give you three. Number one, it affected us physically. Now, work was going to be different. God said to Adam, he said, listen, now whenever you go out and you, you try and work, the ground is going to bring forth thorns and thistles. Now, before that, work was going to be awesome. You were going to have talents, gifts, skills, 
abilities and everything was going to move alongside you and work with you and you were gonna sense meaning, value, and purpose in what you created and what you did. But now the ground is working against you. And you're like, man, I don't know if I buy into all that or not. Uh, Dean, well, let me just ask you about your workplace. Does everything just work alongside with you smoothly? Um, other businesses wanna come alongside? Maybe you've been a part of a, a business partnership, you know, the difficulties that can come, right, in those situations and those cities. It's work just smooth? No, oh, man, competition and, and really the second idea leads to the curse affects us not just physically, but affects us relationally. God said to Eve, your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And of all the things that that can mean, we know that it at least means that in the closest, dearest relationships in our lives, there's gonna be tension at times. There's gonna be strife at times. And you see that, you sense that, right? Anybody sit down for Thanksgiving dinner with their family and somebody brought up politics and everybody got tense? Everybody's like, so we don't wanna, why can't we all just get along? The reason we can't all get along is because of the curse. It's because we're all born into this world broken by sin. And we're all born into this world with struggle and there's gonna be strife and there's gonna be tension. And yet it, it affects us physically and yet it affects us relationally. But maybe the most significant part of the curse is it, it affected us spiritually. Adam and Eve, because of their sin and because of their choice, they have to leave the Garden of Eden. And for the first time, there's this separation between Adam and Eve and, and their creator. And so it's very interesting to me. The curse affects us physically, it affects us relationally, it affects us spiritually. When we come to this time, this season, right, this, this time of the year, we say things and sing things that we do not mean. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Yeah. My wife will make fun of me for that later on. You know, the reality is, it's not. For a lot of people, there's this nagging sense of love that their soul is offset, that things are not the way that they ought to be. It's not the hap, hap, happiest season of all for everybody with marshmallows for toasting and parties for hosting. Now there's this nagging, there's this underlying sense that we are not, that we are not okay. Because this curse hangs over our head. But Genesis chapter three didn't leave us there. Because what God says to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter three, Genesis chapter three, verse 15, God promises, he gives them a covenant promise that there would be one, there would be a deliverer, there would be the one that we look to, there's the anointed one, the Messiah, the one would come, and when he comes, he would crush the head of the serpent, and he would break the curse. Now, Adam and Eve had a promise that the seed of the one, the seed of Eve would be the one that would deliver them. And Adam and Eve believed it. You know how I know that? Because when they had their first son, they named him Cain, which means slayer. Anybody want to name your kid slayer, right? Nobody would name their kid that unless they had an intention. And their intention, I believe, I believe their intention was that Cain was gonna be the one who was gonna slay the enemies. Cain was gonna be the one who would crush the head of the serpent. 
Now the irony, right, is Cain doesn't slay the enemy, but rather he slays his brother, Abel. And so when the, when the tension of that spiritual relationship, right, when Cain walks away, when Cain leaves, then they have a third son, and they name their third son what? Seth, which means substitute. So they thought that Seth was going to be the substitute for Cain, and that, would, that he would become the one who would crush the head of the serpent. And listen, Adam and Eve's theology was incredible. It was great theology, but their timing was off because the world... As much as we looked forward, as much as all of the folks in the Old Testament, as much as they were looking for the Messiah, as much as they were looking for the anointing of the world, would have to wait. And when we talk about this idea of hope, what is wrapped up in hope is waiting. In um, the prophet Isaiah in chapter 42 in the Old Testament in the first verse, he says this, Behold my servant, whom I uphold my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So as we talk about what hope is, let's also um, maybe first talk about what hope is not. Hope is not optimism. Don't confuse those two. We, we get those two things confused a lot. Optimism is the anticipation of better circumstances. Optimism is the idea that, oh yeah, things are gonna change, things will get better. Optimism is wrapped in positive, and listen, there's nothing wrong with optimism. Nothing wrong with positivity. There's nothing wrong with uh, the people who look at the glasses always half full, they always see better things. That's great, it's just not. It's not hope. That's not what the scriptures talk about. There are two Old Testament uh, words for hope, two Hebrew words, yakal and kaval. Yakal is used in Genesis chapter eight when Noah has been on the ark, the rains come down, the floods, I mean, all those, all those kind of things have happened and now it stopped raining. And Genesis eight says that Noah has to yakal the water to recede. He has to wait for the waters to recede, for the ark to settle on dry land. Isaiah and Micah in the Old Testament, the prophets, they used the word kaval. And here's the context. They talked about farmers who would put seeds in the ground and then they planted those seeds, they watered them, and then they had to kaval. They have to wait for those seeds to grow up and for those things to bear fruit. Inherent in the idea of, of hope is the idea of waiting. I was talking with um, our Delaware campus, uh, Pastor Kale, this week. We all kind of, our teaching pastors, we share notes, and we were having this conversation. One of the things that he said, he said, you know, if you think about it, hope would be like someone leaving you um, an inheritance. And so I want to I push this narrative maybe a little, a little further. Let's say, um, let's say you've got a rich uncle. Um, let's say you've got a rich uncle, Jeff who wants to leave you his business. Your rich uncle, Jeff Bezos, wants to leave you his business whenever he dies, right? So whenever your rich uncle, he looks at his kids, he's like, they're gonna squander this thing. I'm gonna leave it to my niece or my nephew, that's you. And when he passes, the only, the only hitch is that when he dies, 
You get the promise that you will become the CEO and owner of Amazon in 10 years. But for the next decade, you have to do the most menial jobs at Amazon, right? You got to learn how to fix the trucks. You got to learn how to organize the boxes. You got to start in the mail room with how to, how to know where this goes and that goes. And for 10 years, you've got to learn the guts of the business of Amazon. But at the end of 10 years, you become the, the CEO and the owner. How would you respond? I don't think very many of us would go, nah, I'm good. I think most of us are going to go, yeah, absolutely. Why, why would you do that? Because legally you understand what's waiting for you at the end of 10 years. And I would just say for us as believers, for us looking at, we have something so much better than Amazon. We have the actual creator of the actual Amazon River in South America, right? That is the one that we are waiting for. That's why Isaiah says in chapter 8 and verse 17, I will put my hope in him. Isaiah never in all the chapters of I, he never expresses this idea that his circumstances will ever change. And yet he says, I have hope. What's your hope? My hope is in a person. That's why we sang this morning what? Hope has a name. His name is Jesus. Hope, the one that we are waiting for, um, it is a, it's a person, right? So you look at what happens. Let's go back to the, to the curse in the Old Testament. What Adam, Adam uh, what he ruined, the New Testament says, that one came along that it calls the second Adam. Romans chapter five, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul calls this one who comes, this Messiah, this anointed one, Jesus, it calls him the second Adam. And what Adam ruined in the garden, Jesus restores, right? He, he restores to us this, this garden fellowship where Adam disobeyed. The New Testament says in Hebrews that Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. The second Adam, he obeys perfectly. Where the first Adam was selfish, the second Adam, Jesus, he was completely selfless. Where the first Adam in the garden took from the tree and broke the world, Jesus gives his life on a tree to restore the brokenness to wholeness. The first Adam brought us nothing but death. But praise God, the second Adam comes along and he brings us new eternal life. Where the second Adam was buried and left for dead in the ground, in the grave, the second Adam was put into the ground, was miraculously raised to new life. Our hope is not in that we're gonna have better circumstances someday. Our hope is in a person. We have yakar, the Old Testament, they yakal, they kavald, the coming of the Messiah. But the beautiful thing for you and me is if that if there was a first advent, and I believe that there was, if there was a first coming, if there was a first arrival, that means what? That there is a second coming, there is a second advent, there's a second coming that we are cavalling today, that we are longing for, hoping for, waiting for, where Jesus says, I am gonna finish the work that I started. Our hope is a, it's a person. And that's important. Because objectively we put our faith in the, but it's not just a person. Look what Paul says in the, in the next verse, in verse six. 
He says, this person which has come to you, as in indeed in the whole world, this, this person, this, this gospel is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day that you heard it and understood, um, and understood the grace of truth. Paul says, listen, our hope is not just a person, but it's also a power. And it is a power that bears fruit, that changes you. And when we talk about gospel fruit, gospel bearing fruit in the New Testament, right? Galatians lays it out very clearly. These qualities, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So in the life of every Christian, what we ought to see over the long arc of time is that we ought to see the gospel at work in us internally bearing fruit. So we ought to become more loving. We ought to become more faithful. We ought to become more patient. We ought to become more kind. So the question for you and me is, as we look at our individual lives, is the gospel bearing fruit in you? As you look at the long arc, not the short term, but the long arc of your life, are you more faithful than you were five years ago, 10 years ago? Are you more loving than you were five years ago, 10 years ago? Are you more patient than you were five years ago? Because if the spirit of the person, right, the Messiah, is at work on the inside of us, his gospel hope is bearing fruit in us to the degree, this is the beautiful part of the gospel, that you can change. I can change. I can be different. I don't have to allow my external circumstances and the external factors. I don't have to allow the things that were done by me and to me in my past, the things that were said by me and said to me in my Those things don't have to determine my reality or my future because there's something more powerful. There's a hope, a person alive on the inside of your spirit that's bearing fruit that leads to change. And that's, I think that's important for us. Because we can very easily, especially during this season, but outside of this season, we can fall into a trap here in Columbus. There's only two places in all of the United States that have more influence than Columbus in the areas of fashion. It's LA and New York City. Columbus is the third most influential city in America, mainly because of L Brands that's here in our city, the third largest influencer of fashion um, in, in the country. Now, what's interesting, if you do a little bit of digging, right, in L Brands, well, you see the L Brands kind of peaks early 2000s, maybe early 2000 teens, right, with the, the beginning of the Victoria's Secret. That was kind of their number one right at the time, the Victoria's Secret fashion show. It was primetime TV. It broke the internet. I don't know if you remember that. Whenever, um, whenever it first started, it was this celebration of the physically right elite, the body that everybody would want to have, the look, the fashion, the, the clothes, the, um, everything that we wanted. You don't catch that on primetime anymore, right? When I was a kid, really, really young, the Miss America pageant, it was must-see TV. Every family, right, would gather around the TV and we would watch as we celebrate Miss America, the most talented, the, the smartest, the most physically beautiful. I don't even know if that's on Fubo TV, right, anymore. I have no idea where the Miss America pageant went to, let alone the Miss Universe pageant. And you know what? Other brands have followed suit. 
Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue used to be the big, big deal. Like, who's going to get the cover of the Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue? Who was on the cover of Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue last year? Anybody? Anybody remember? 81-year-old Martha Stewart was on the cover of Sports Illustrated, the swimsuit issue last year. Why? Because we have learned a very important lesson, that fashion, the rearrangement, that cosmetic change on the outside of us cannot affect your soul. It cannot sustain you, change you. And we have learned that that is not the thing, the ultimate thing that we all thought it was, the thing that we thought that we're looking for. So what we've done over the past 10 years is that we've shifted. We said, we want to celebrate everybody, which is great. Let's celebrate everybody. What we're finding out even now is not even that's going to change you because it's not a power. This gospel where we come and we humble ourselves and we say that I am just as broken as anybody else that's ever been born into this world. I am not and will not be spiritually elite. I can't fix or change myself and this nagging sense of loneliness that something is not right can only be fixed by somebody else. And it's fixed because what? Because I have hope, I have a person, and the person delivers to me, in me, and through me a power, the power to change, the thing that we all really want. Over the long arc of our lives, we can be different. And there's a great example of this in Colossians uh, chapter one, pick it back up in verse seven. Just as you learned it, it being the gospel, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love um, in the spirit. Paul says, hey, here's a great example of this change. This guy, Epaphras. Epaphras, uh, as much as we can tell, was the, 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 the shepherd, the pastor of the church here. And you've probably never heard of his name, uh, or at least maybe never haven't come across his name in a long time. Um, one of these names in the New Testament that we just kind of read our way through. Epaphras. His parents named him on prayer. You know what his name means? Lovely makes me say that his parents want him to get beaten up in middle school, right? It's like naming your son cutie, right? You wouldn't do that. To, you know, never listen to a boy named Sue by Johnny Cash, right? Because you know what happens, right? But Epaphras, he becomes this, this leader and Paul holds him up as an example of gospel change. So why, why is that? Well, we learn more about Epaphras over in Colossians chapter four. So three chapters over to the right, we get this. We learn this about Epaphras, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always struggling on your behalf in his prayers so that you may stand mature. Key word here, Epaphras was somebody always struggling. Wouldn't it be great if you had somebody in your life that was always struggling for you? always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Why is he praying so much that you may stand mature so that this gospel process in you of you bearing fruit over the long arc of your life so that you become the kind of person, not just that God wants you to become, but the kind of person that you really want to become. If you just had an Epaphras in your life, the word struggling there is an interesting word. It's the Greek word agon. It's where we get our word for agony. Epaphras was the kind of person 
who would agonize. You know the way they used it in their culture? Wrestling. I don't know about you. Uh, growing up as a kid in southern Ohio, every Saturday night at 6.35 p.m., I would tune our little cable box uh, over to TBS out of Atlanta because I would watch every Saturday night Georgia Championship Wrestling, right? And watching Georgia Championship Wrestling, there were two guys who were kind of the pinnacle. I'll show you uh, their pictures, and if you've ever watched wrestling, uh, maybe you know these, these faces, right? The Nature Boy, Ric Flair, and the Junkyard Dog. And if you're too young uh, to know these guys, think of it this way. This is John Cena, and this is The Rock, right there. That's who these, that's who these guys were. And every Saturday night, I would turn them on, and I would you know, love watching uh, professional uh, wrestling even though um, it's fake, right? Hate to disappoint some of you, um, but even though it's not, it's not, I was very disappointed when I learned last week that it was fake as well as a big, I know, I know, it's tough. But Epaphras, not a fake wrestler, he was a real wrestler. He agonized in prayer. Why would he do that? And the only other time in all of the scriptures in the whole Bible, that this word agon is used in relation to prayer. Garden of Gethsemane, night before Jesus goes to the cross, the scriptures say that he bowed down in the Garden of Gethsemane and then he agonized, that he wrestled in prayer. Why is he wrestling? For his own sake? Maybe, but the greater good you read in John chapter 17, the greater reason that he's agonizing is for what? For you and me, that he would present us, right, standing mature, that we would be unified, right, in the faith so that we would grow up into the knowledge of him. So the same heart, the same attitude, Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane the night before he goes to the cross is what? Not my will but your will be done. Where do you think Jesus learned that? I think he learned it from his mama. Christmas narrative, angel comes to Mary. Unbelievable what's about to happen. What does she say? May it be to me according to your word. So let me ask you, can you pray that today? Can you pray right now, God, not my will, but your will be done. God, let it be to me right now according to you. Not, my, not what I want, but what you. In other words, if your word says it and it strikes my heart, God, I'm going to do it. Are you there? Are you in that spot, in that space right now? That's hope. It's hope that you're waiting on a person to do in you what you can't do in you. Even when there are times where you encounter, you engage the word, and you're like, I don't understand. I don't know. This doesn't make sense. That's okay. Because you got hope. You have a person. And this hope is powerful to bring change in you. It's powerful to bring change in me. It changed Paul. Unbelievable that he was Saul. And God makes him Paul, who he once was, a murderer of Christians. He becomes the leader of the band. 
It changed Paul. It changed Epaphras. It changed these Colossian Christians who are, there's gospel fruit bearing, increasing, growing in their lives. And there's 29 people who got in that baptistry this morning here at our campus and said this gospel fruit is still working, this gospel power, this gospel hope, it's still changing people today. And if you don't have it, it will change you if you'll receive it. You don't have to live a cosmetic, plastic kind of existence. And you're like, well, you know, Dean, I mean, I've got these things I want to, I want to, let me just ask you, how's that working? You've bought the latest and greatest before, right? Did that fill your soul? Everything going smooth at work? All your relationships, right, are... Now, we've learned over and over and over again that earthly, worldly hope is just going to disappoint us again and again and again. But this gospel hope can change us. So we sing, Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days, if there was a first advent, there's going to be a second. For endless days, we will sing his praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord, our God. We are blessed people, church, that we have hope. Let's pray together. Lord, we are so grateful for what you do in and around us in the waiting, it is uh, contradictory, God, to our souls. It is, uh, it, uh, God doesn't, it doesn't mesh with us. It doesn't make sense to us. And at the same time, that's seemingly where you do the best work in us. And so, God, we continue to look for you and we continue to look to you to do in us what we cannot do in ourselves. And God, it makes us grateful, grateful people. That this morning as we sing, that we could bless your name, that we could utter words, God, that would please your heart and your soul as we, as much as humanly possible, say, not my will. As we, as much as humanly possible, open up our hands. As we, as much as human beings can do, we confess that we cannot fix ourselves. But bless your name. That you can fix us, that you can change us, and you can make us new. In your name we pray.